0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 185. My name is Ariel ben Laiman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we're delighted to join uh, with others around the world once again to study your words of life, to allow the Spirit to uh, move us and to motivate us and to empower us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, you're faithful, and we thank you that you preserved your words for us so that we can um, allow them to become a part of uh, our everyday living so that we can um, have a blueprint uh, for what is right, what is holy, and uh, a definition of sin. And um, by your Spirit, we allow these words to hide deep in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Help us to continue to um, uh, be witnesses of your great kingdom and um seeking to witness to others to share with others this um this uh, good news this uh, uh, great hope that we have and um lord just to to be a friend to people out there who are just Just in need. So a lot of hurting people out there in the world today. So, we thank you for um, these studies. I pray that you'll uh, be with me and uh, give me a recollection of the things that I've studied this week so that I can have something that's um, challenging for the students. And I'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Bishim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live Internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and we're starting off again where we left off Uh, Last week in our study on Matthew chapter 9, uh, we're looking at verses 14 through 17, as you can see pulled up on my screen right now. And let me just read the passage in question, and then we'll jump right into the study where we left off. The passage reads, and this is the ESV version that I'm borrowing here, then the disciples of John came to him saying, and we're talking about um, Yeshua, right? If you've got a red letter edition of the Bible like King James or ESV, then you can instantly see that these are the words of the Master here. Um, the, uh, the disciples said why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast and then verse 15 Jesus says to them can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast He continues, No one puts a piece of cloth in verse 16. I'm sorry, verse, um, yeah, verse 16. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then in verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is the wineskins, or if it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And that's the end of the um, passage. And as we've been talking about, and we've been borrowing um, a commentary that is available on my website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, right on the homepage, there's a cluster of links to commentaries and um, commentary series, and the um, uh, Matthew commentary is, is right in that cluster. They're alphabetized, so just find it there. And we've been looking at different Christian commentaries. have been kind of pouring through the mind of different pastors, different well-known pastors who have offered their interpretation of this set of passages, this set of verses. We looked at, and this isn't in the order, but I'm just rattling them off in the order that they pop into my head. We looked at um, Pastor John MacArthur. We've looked at Pastor um, John Piper. We looked at we looked at um, Pastor David Guzik. We looked at uh, gotquestions.org, and I utilized um, resources that are easily available to anyone on the internet, and they're free and they're somewhat comprehensive. The resources that I mentioned uh, offer um, commentaries on this particular passage. Indeed, um, Pastor John P- Piper, I'm sorry, Pastor John MacArthur, and Pastor David Guzik they actually both offer um verse by verse commentaries on the entire bible i bet you didn't know that i mean you can get not just good solid teaching but for free right that's great for anyone's budget so go ahead and check them out john piper p-i-p-e-r and john macarthur i can't remember how to spell macarthur it's m-a-c or m-c i think it's m-a-c but um look them up online and uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're they're highly respected, well trusted, um, highly reliable as well. But what I found is that your average Christian um, interpretation of these passages is pushed into a mindset or framework or a hermeneutic, kind of like a, a scriptural bias when we talk about hermeneutic of interpreting Yeshua's words. Right, the three parts: the part of the the, the feast, uh, the wedding feasts. And and then the part about the, the unshrunk cloth, and then the part about the old wineskins. Um, most Christian pastors interpret these verses as if Yeshua is explaining to those around him that he's going to begin to bring this radically new way of life, uh, new religion, as it were, a um a lifestyle that's incompatible with the existing worldview of Judaism or the existing religion of Judaism. Um, And that's why Yeshua has to use these examples of the unshrunk cloth and the old garment, right? If Yeshua were to just take Judaism, treat it like an unshrunk cloth, I'm sorry, treat, treat it like an old cloth, and try to patch it with his theology, then Yeshua's theology is not going to match up with the jewish worldview or the jewish way of life or the jewish way of thinking about approaching god through keeping the commandments and the sacrifices and things like that and there and yeshua's theology and teaching is going to tear away from judaism and cause a worse hole likewise if yeshua's these these are the interpretations so i'm giving kind of the uh, the overview um i'm just i'm paraphrasing what many pastors have said likewise um when yeshua hit the scene he realized that what he was offering was akin to Pouring new wine, which is symbolic of Yeshua's theology and teaching and way of thinking into old wine skins which was Judaism again and If Yeshua were to simply do that then the skins would burst the wine would be spilled and Both would be destroyed and things like that um, The skins would be destroyed right Judaism couldn't handle Yeshua's new teaching new theology is so radical as it is so instead what is offered by christian commentaries is that judaism had to step aside so we're talking basically about replacement theology supersessionism um what christians are fond of or not fond but commonly taught is that the old testament gave way to the new testament right old testament is out new testament is in so kind of replacement there changing of the guards um we could also extend that to people groups so that the people of israel are being replaced or set aside or put on back burner status or the the, their program is being mothballed or whatever you know whatever analogy that pops into your head in favor of the christian church or the gentile christians coming on the scenes and being the new people group or the new israel of god so the old israel is out the new israel is in um, we have the um, example given by many Christian pastors of uh, the law of Moses is being replaced by the law of Christ. Um, we could also add to that the terms covenant where we have Christians who often say, I'm not an old covenant Christian, I'm a new covenant Christian. So, all of those elements really amount to the same thing, a replacement of something that was existing because it was incompatible. It couldn't handle the theology of what was being presented. And so, that's the discussion that we're jumping into. And so, in my commentary, what I'm beginning to entertain is this thought of old man new man and messianic judaism and what i'm proposing is that instead of having to replace um those elements that i mentioned you know judaism and israel and the law of moses and the old testament things like that in favor of the new instead of replacing them what if instead yeshua was simply teaching a radical reformation from the inside out of an individual so that we don't end up having to replace the systems we end up reforming them they are radically changed but we still retain those systems we simply infuse them with new meanings uh, or fulfilled meanings i should say not necessarily new meanings but um fulfilled meanings or um uh um what we might call the deeper spiritual meanings, like Yeshua challenged people in his Sermon on the Mount about, you've heard it said, but I tell you, X, Y, Z. And so, Yeshua is not replacing the law of Moses, he's actually just bringing it to its fullest expression and giving us the true proper meaning that had been lost because of all the, the traditions and um, um, the halakha and the policies and the fences and, and things like that that had been built up over time. In an effort to change the system or change um the failing people of god yeshua realized that it's not necessary to get rid of the existing people like the jews right out with the jews and in with the gentiles or something like that instead yeshua simply came to transform the man let's change the man from the inside out he can still practice his judaism he can still be a true israelite or a loyal torah keeper but now he's going to do it with a renewed sense of love for God, because he's filled with the Spirit of God, and he's has faith in the Son of God. So let's pick up my commentary where I left off, and see if this reads a little better and if it gives a better sense of the um, the sense uh, of the uh, uh, the the goal of what Yeshua was trying to get at when he brought his. And it was indeed radical, right? We, are gonna, we have to recognize it was radical. He had some harsh words to say to those religious leaders in his day. Uh, let's pick it up. I, this is my own commentary. I say, So, in an effort to properly explain Yeshua's teachings on the matter, I believe that we must start with the mainline doctrinal position that only a circumcised heart can receive the words of God thus Bringing that individual in line with the Son of God and the Spirit of God. Notice how I carefully and um weaved in a, a little bit of a of a um of a of a uh, trinitarian um wording in there. Kind of, I didn't mention the Father, but Word of God, Son of God, Spirit of God. And what I believe, again, um, without kind of belaboring this too much, is that um, Jesus didn't come to replace Judaism. It wasn't really in need of being replaced. Although, we could say that there was a form of Judaism that existed in Yeshua's day, kind of an oral tradition, we can call it Oral Torah, or the early workings of um, Talmudic Judaism, um, Mishnah Judaism, uh, even the beginnings of Rabbinic Judaism with Pharisaic Judaism and things like that. A lot of people aren't aware that the different kinds of Judaism that were present in the time of Yeshua um don't necessarily equal biblical Judaism. When I say biblical Judaism, I mean, consider that when Moses was given the words of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, and then Moses went on to later write out the rest of the Torah, um, you know, the books of uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy that we now know as the five books, that lifestyle that God described, that God was um, giving to the people of Israel, right? That he was outlining for them he's describing in those pages that is what i call biblical judaism so that the very first generation should have had what we might think of as the purest form and as time went by israel kind of built up all these kind of perverted versions of what god really intended so um by the time we get to yeshua's day uh, we had these versions of Judaism that were competing and clouding God's Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, uh, Pharisaic Judaism, or wasn't really rabbinic just yet, but it's kind of it was getting there. It was it was being built up the oral traditions, uh, Talmudic Judaism, and thing all these things. And eventually, when the temple got destroyed in 70 A.D. and Judaism kind of scattered and went into panic mode, they reconvened in a city called Yavne, which is a little north of Jerusalem, uh, around 90 A.D. and began to form. The oral traditions and put them into writing because they felt they were going to lose their way of life if they didn't really codify their beliefs, put them in writing somewhere so that they could be taught to all the Jewish people who were scattered out of Jerusalem. And so we could say that Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism of the rabbis, which again is radically different from Biblical Judaism, because Rabbinic Judaism scrambles to put together what to do in the absence of a temple sacrifices priesthood and all these things um how do we serve god when we can't even get to a temple there's nothing there it's been destroyed jerusalem is it's not accessible how do we serve god how do we reinterpret the law of moses so rabbinic judaism kind of had to alter the way they interpreted the torah and um, plus they still had retained all of their extra biblical fences oral traditions things like that and so really what we have now today the rabbinic judaism that people are used to seeing is only a kind of a skeletal framework uh, resemblance when it comes to real true biblical judaism it's so radically different it departed and so many people don't know that but in jesus day the point i'm trying to make is that jesus realized yeshua realized that what his father wanted all along was the heart of a man we don't have to throw out the man. You know, I was using the analogy of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We don't have to throw out the man in order to radically change him. Instead, Jesus can simply bring the truth of what God, his father, was intending all along. And this is a feature that's found way back in the pages of the Torah circumcision of the heart, which can only happen by faith if you allow the word of God to penetrate and allow the spirit of God to reveal to you who the very Son of God is in terms of the overall picture. The Son of God is the key to unlocking true obedience to God, true circumcision of the heart, right? Not just circumcision of flesh, right? That's good, but circumcision of the heart is better. The entire theme of New Testament teaching is good versus better. The law of Moses is good, but the law of Christ is better. We don't have to go bad, good, like law of Moses is bad and law of... Christ is good. Instead, we can retain the law of Moses because it was, why do we have to retain that by the way? Why am I so adamant about keeping it and as opposed to um, discarding it like average Christians do, Christian theology? Um, uh, you know, you know, they might think, well, what good is the Old Testament anymore? I don't need it anymore. I'm not under the law anymore. Why do I need all of those do's and don'ts and thou shalt's and thou shalt nots and all that ritualistic uh, um, observance? Why do I need all that when I have the real deal? I've got Jesus. I've got, I've got. I don't have the shadow. I've got the type. Why do I need the shadow anymore? Ah, let me answer. It's because we have to start with the premise, put your mind back into the foundational truth that the shadow was given by God. Let me pause and let that sink in. As deficient as we might think of the shadow, and it did have its built-in deficiencies, it was still given by God. The biblical system that was described by Moses from the pages of uh, Exodus through... Deuteronomy, when in terms of commandments, right? Genesis being mostly narrative, that system is God's system. It wasn't made up by Moses. It wasn't made up by the people per se, right? I know they filled in for some of the missing details, their own halacha, but the overall thrust of the Torah is God breathed. Paul's going to tell Timothy, right, in uh, 2 Timothy 3 15, 16, etc. You guys know those passages all scriptures God breathed. It's inspired by God. It's given for reproof and correction and training and righteousness and all those things, that the man of God may be equipped. So we can retain um, a Jewish way of life as long as we're keeping the Torah, but the key that Yeshua going to offer is that do it with a renewed sense of um, service to God as is driven by your faith in me as the Son of God and activated by the Spirit of God. So let's pick up my commentary right there where I'm leaving these thoughts. I say in my commentary, this accords with the words of Torah and all of the apostolic scriptures agree with and affirm it as well. Something that we often lose in our Christian exegesis and interpretation of um, the words of Jesus and the words of the Bible is that the apostolic scriptures are meant to perfectly agree with the law of Moses. We don't have to have a contradiction between what Moses laid down and what Yeshua laid down. Indeed, if you properly understand Paul's writings, you'll find that he was a lifelong Torah keeper and that he uh, frequently did things that were not only in agreement with Torah, but in um, uh, they were a demonstration of his loyalty to Torah, like Acts chapter 21, where he's uh, keeping these um, uh, feasts and this vow and things like that. And so, it's not necessary to tell Jews who are already loyal to Torah before they come to Jesus, once they become a Christian, you, can, you have to leave all that stuff behind, right? Sabbath's got to go. Sunday keeping is what you're going to do now, right? Keeping kosher, forget about that. Why try to do all that, right? Just have a ham sandwich. Um, you know, Keeping the festivals, now nah, we've got some new ones for you, right? Christmas, Easter, things like that, and Lent if you're a Catholic. Um, why do we have to give him all that extra, and I'm using air quotes here, Gentile Christian baggage right the foreign aspect to why can't he continue to be a zealous Jew zealous for the law and yet a believer in Jesus he can he can i go on to say Judaism does not need to die and unfortunately the gentile christian church the element of the church that is described as gentile christianity which kind of blossomed after the first disciples kind of died out and the early christians finally passed on That version of um, the church or the body of Messiah, they they felt it was necessary to recreate peoplehood and people identity. And so, Gentile Christianity really sought to be identified over and against the Jewish identity. So, there was a kind of an othering, what we call in psychology or or, um, sociology and things like that. Um, the idea of us versus them going on. We are not Jews. Don't persecute us as Jews. Don't mistake us as Jews. All of these things. And so, in their efforts to to establish their position as a religion and a people of God, Judaism had to die. It had to be suppressed. It had to be kind of weeded out. It had to be hunted down and executed, almost, as it were. So, there, there was a kind of an effort, a concerted effort, a, um, a detailed Effort to go throughout the vestiges of the Christian Empire as it was flourishing there, you know, in the, in the Middle East, as well, also in the West and Rome, and and all throughout Asia and things like that, and to kind of stop Christians from doing, I'm using air quotes again, Jewish things like Sabbath keeping, a kosher keeping, and and um keeping the festivals on the dates that they show up in the Bible, because if you do these things, the leaders of that day told their followers, who were Gentiles, if you do those Jewish things, you're going to look Jewish. And people are going to mistake who you are. They're going to think you're Jewish, when instead you're not. And we all know that that religion failed. We know those people group failed God. We know that that law is a burden. It's bondage. It's um, It can't be followed. It's it's, it's legalistic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you guys know that all, all the stereotypes. So let me keep reading my commentary. So Judaism doesn't have to die, in my opinion. However, I go on to say, it most certainly needs to be Reformed, and that's where the parable of Yeshua's comes in, right? If you actually go back and look at the parable one more time, let me pull it up again for you. If you look carefully, for instance, starting in verse sixteen, with the piece of unshrunk cloth in the old garment, if you read that story and corroborate it with the details that show up also in Mark and Luke, missing from John, but it's found in the other two. You can see, actually, that the purpose of the person patching the garment, think about it, you ready for it? I'm going to drop the bomb on you. The purpose of patching the garment is so that you can keep the garment. Let me pause and let that sink in. You buy a piece of unshrunk cloth right from the store, wherever you get it back in the day. And Yeshua is not saying you have to throw out the old garment go and buy a new garment, well, that defeats the purpose of buying a patch. If you think about this logically, verse 16, you buy a new patch that's unshrunk, and the only thing you need to do is simply shrink the patch first. What does that mean? It means to somehow allow the patch and the garment to become adaptive to one another, to become compatible with one another, so that your purchase of the new garment, of the new um, patch, is not in vain, and you don't have to throw away that garment which has served you faithfully for all those years. That's the purpose of patching it anyway. Understand? So if the garment is Judaism and the patch is Yeshua's teaching, then Yeshua's not out to toss the garment. He's out to retain the garment. He simply wants to repair it and retain it and reform it with the patch. So, in the end, he ends up with, it it is a patched garment, yeah, but it's a garment you can still wear and utilize. Likewise, if you look at verse 17, we've got two elements. We've got new wine and we've got old wineskins. And in the Christian analogies, the new wine is Yeshua's theology and his teaching and the old wineskins is Judaism. And most people come along and say, uh-uh-uh, don't you see it's right there in black and white? Jesus is, uh, his teachings aren't incompatible uh, because if you try to just pour Jesus' teaching in to these old wineskins, they can't, they can't handle it and they're going to burst. And so what's the solution? The solution, according to most Christian theolo- uh, um, uh, commentators, is to toss out Judaism, bring in a new religion, uh like a new wineskin altogether, um a different wineskin and then allow jesus uh teaching to be poured into that but if you read the the, the, the verse 17 the idea is that the wine and the wineskin the relationship between these this new wine and these old wineskins is that somehow you need to condition the old wineskin to allow it to stretch a little bit more so that the new wine can put in there because he says if the skins burst and the wine is spilled the skins are destroyed right that is true but notice the very last sentence new wine which is yeshua's teaching is put into doesn't say new wine skins there it doesn't even say that in english if your bible says that new wine is put into new wine skins well then it's being a little bit um i don't want to say deceptive on purpose but it's not giving the best rendering of english translation What you need to do is is go back and look at the original Greek, or just look at comparative translations, you know, pull up about four or five or six different versions, you know, KJV, NIV, ESV, NESB, things like that, NET. And you'll find that the new wine, which is one word, new, the adjective, is put into not new wineskins. We don't have to toss out the old ones and bring in brand new ones. Instead, it's put into, like the ESV says, fresh, reconditioned wineskins. See it there. I'm just pausing and letting you read it for yourself. The idea that Yeshua was bring was a radically new cha- uh, teaching, changed the man from the inside out. But we keep the man. We keep this. It's the same guy, right? God is not to kill the person and recreate a brand new human. God wants to retain the the the, the original person, just transform him from the inside out. Start with a circumcised heart and work with what's there, and so the last few words are so telling if we do it God's way where the new wine which is Yeshua's teaching it's put into fresh or um, we could translate the word fresh there as refreshed or refurbished or renewed reinvigorated fresh wineskins look at this what happens if we do it God's way both are preserved so if the wineskin is Judaism and Yeshua's teaching is the new wine Contrary to what we saw the pastor saying, I don't know why they're blind to what I'm looking at. Maybe there's a bias there that they're not willing to admit. I don't know. I don't want to judge them. But as I read it, both are preserved. You end up with new wine, and you end up with the old wineskin that you started out with beginning. And that's the ideal choice. And so, we can see that verse 16 and 17 Agree with one another in the analogies. Nothing's really getting replaced. We're simply conditioning the older item so that it can handle the newer um, augmentation, the newer um, element that's being brought into the picture. So let's go back to my commentary. I go on to say, given these foundational truths, um, given these foundational truths, let's allow David Stern. Um, who's a well-known and well-respected messianic jewish author of the complete jewish bible to provide us with some notes from his invaluable work entitled the jewish new testament commentary which i have sitting on my bookshelf right here um i don't agree with everything that david stern uh teaches in his uh version of the bible his kind of proprietary personal uh interpretation of the bible along with the jewish commentary that came out but there's a lot of what he teaches that is right on the money and necessary for the Christian Gentile, the Gentile Christian church to really grasp, so that they can appreciate that the law of Moses doesn't have to be discarded. And indeed, uh, David Stern um, is known for bringing the side, this discussion of of the Torah back into the room uh, when his when his when his version of the Bible came out. Um, so maybe since then it's kind of um you can kind of feel it um uh the the the, what do we say um how it's uh the age is its age is showing in its theology and its uh, applicability um and some of its um uh, interpretations are a little uh you can tell that they're not put together by a committee but they're only put together maybe by one man and newer versions have come out on the scene that are maybe even preferable over david stern's version if you still want to retain a hebraic ass of aspect of a hebraic looking bible you know the tree of life tlv is a great say alternative to david stern's version if you're not familiar with it, tlv tree of life version put out by a committee group rather than just an individual individual man so you're going to have a little bit more safety um, when it comes to um, um, interpreting passages, uh, rather than just have one guy's perspective, you can have a group perspective, which sometimes provides a little more stability. Nevertheless, um, we're not going to look at David Stern's Version 9. I'm just kind of wetting your appetite. This is what we're going to pick up next week um, uh, in this uh, paragraph right here. But that'll do it for our look at Matthew nine. 14 through 17 are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another. Otherwise, the short title is Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture congregation. Kei Latunvala Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graphedin.com and join us in in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com, that's t-e-t-z-e-t-o-r-a-h.com, I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Say Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay just a brief important uh, details if you'd like to join us for our live studies be sure to get access to skype somehow if you're on my website right now um Uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website, where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there, and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions, and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, Thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we left off last week where we're talking about this idea of the Holy Spirit. We're in this final section of my three-part commentary, which is available on web on my website at tatesator.com, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we're looking at passages about the Holy Spirit. We're really focusing on the Holy Spirit. That's His, um, His place, is front and center for us now. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? We've talked about the different um, viewpoints of the Holy Spirit. Unitarian aspects, monotheistic groups who reject Trinity and simply relegate the Spirit of God to usually either just another way of saying God himself, like the Spirit of God is God, since God is a spirit. When we find phrases like the Spirit of God or Holy Spirit, many Christian groups like Unitarian groups, non-Trinitarian non groups, they simply believe that the Bible is describing God um, God the Father or God Himself. There's no third person in their perspective. Other groups, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and some other Christian groups like Christadelphians, um, um, Iglesia Cristo, and and is the Oneness Pentecostal well, Church of God. Um, I'm just rattling off off the top of my head some of the groups that I think are anti. They're not really anti-trinitarian. They're just some of them are, but many of them are just non-trinitarian. So they're not really hostile to trinitarian theology. Some are. You'd, you'd be amazed. But the general gist is that God, uh, the spirit of God is either this generic, uh, quality or aspect of God that can be gifted from God, right? Um, or uh, the spirit of God is an impersonal force of power, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think describe him that way. He's um he's a, a um he's an it, right? He's not even a he. So that's how many people interact with the Bible when it talks about the Holy Spirit. But what we've been doing is borrowing this chart from Karm, and the chart originally had three parts to it. God, it, it had Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I just trimmed off the part for the Holy Spirit for this section. And what we're doing is we're going through the verses, and we're looking at all the places where we have snapshots in the Bible of God the Spirit's either identity, as seen through the lens of ontology, like where He's connected with the being of God, where He truly is God because of um, of, of of character traits, and um, we can see uh, signatures in His essence, right? Uh, descriptions that are otherwise. Um, uh exclusive to god right um, omnipotent uh omniscient um you know everywhere at the same time and things like that otherwise we're looking at actions of the uh holy spirit things that the holy spirit does and as he performs his duty here on planet earth because he's sent by god to remind us of the words of the master yeshua and in doing so we can see that the holy spirit is demonstrating personality traits. He's demonstrating he's not just an impersonal it right because he's doing things that the definition of personhood can be ascribed to right people are persons right humans are person we have personhood so we can use those similar activities and uh, attributes when we're talking about the things that people can do or things that can be done to people we see the this happening with the Holy Spirit and so we talked about how he, that he's um uh, everywhere he's all- knowing he sanctifies and we stop there. Um, and then what we did is I decided to, to entertain this excursus and excursus is essentially a kind of a digression from the main thought, but it's done with the purpose of supporting and bolstering the main point. So we're in this excursus on the book of Romans chapter eight, which according to, um, um, uh, statistics is, uh, one of the places where, The Holy Spirit shows up the most in just one short chapter. By book-wise, it's the book of Galatians. I bet you're surprised about that. Um, Galatians is the book of all of Paul's writings, of all of Paul's letters, that contains the word Spirit just in in sheer number, contains it the most amount of times. But in terms of chapters, I think I got my statistics right there. Don't quote me. But in reading that in the past somewhere, I think that's what it is. But uh, Romans chapter 8 is a great spirit passage so we've been working away kind of looking at each verse not spending terribly too much time because i don't want to turn this excursus into another romans chapter 14 study where it goes week week after week on end you know month after month i just want to want to take maybe last week and this week i think i can finish it up this week if not then we'll continue it in the next week but only two or three weeks at the most so let me back up we stopped at i believe verse 8 last week back and listen to episode number 184 but let's pick this up again let me back up in verse five to get a kind of a running start. Paul says um, in verse five of chapter eight, "For those who live according to the flesh," he's describing this um, uh, these two different types of people. We have people who live according to the flesh, and people who live according to the spirit. And we just, we talked about how that the people who live according to the flesh could either be Paul's description of unbelievers, right, unsaved people, or They could be Christians who are not living the way God wants them to live, what Ryrie's Bible used to call the carnal Christian. So you have worldly Christians, fleshly Christians. They are Christians. They're genuine believers, but they're not living with any real power in their life because they're allowing the old habits of the old memory of their life when they were still um, unsaved they're allowing those to really dominate their life when really they should be living as new christians right so it's possible to be saved and still walk a sinful life not going to be very uh very um enjoyable life because spirit of god's not going to let you rest But Paul says, there are people who live according to the flesh, and they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And ultimately, we're going to find that this is death in the next verse. But by contrast, he says, those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And so, when we talk about Torah observance, like we've been doing in the Matthew study, what Yeshua brought to the equation is the importance of living according to the Spirit. Which means you can still retain your Torah-observant lifestyle as long as you do it living according to the Spirit. Don't walk according to the letter of the law, but walk according to the Spirit of the law. And in doing so, you will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Paul actually said that earlier if you to take your Bible and go back up a few verses in the same chapter that we're in. You can lead a Torah-observant lifestyle that's pleasing to God, and you can do it while living according to the Spirit. Because why? The Spirit of God is not in competition with the law of God. On the contrary, the Spirit of God is going to be in full agreement with the words of God because we're talking about one God and one Spirit, like Paul says in other parts of his letters. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? One Spirit that's driving the show. So the same Spirit that inspired the writing of the Torah is the same Spirit that lives inside of you That empowers you to to do this, to do what? You ready for it? To be Torah obedient. Yeah, radical thing that is. Okay, so live according to the Spirit, and if you do so, you're going to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Here's the contrast again. If you set your mind on the flesh, it's death. By the con by by comparison paul says but to set the mindless spirit is life and peace indeed if we were to take verse 6 of chapter 8 here in romans and use it as a commentary to second corinthians chapter 3 where paul talks about this torah as a ministry of death right the thing that was thought to be life was bringing death to me like he said in the previous chapter here in romans chapter 7 why is the torah ministry of death is because if you set your mind on the flesh if your heart is not circumcised but merely your flesh like your average Israelite was or your average Jew today who doesn't believe in Jesus then that 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 default status is a mindset on the flesh even though you're trying to keep Torah and even though you might look religious to other people on the outside On the inside, there's been no heart change, no circumcision of the heart. And so, for that reason, as much as you try to keep Torah, on the one hand, there might be a kind of a semblance of Torah keeping, because parts of the Torah can be kept kind of in automatic mode. You don't have to really think about it. You can just do them. But on the other hand, the Torah isn't really going to be fulfilled according to the Spirit because you don't have the ability to do it. You've not been changed from the inside out. You've not been born again. And so, your mind is going to be set on the flesh, and the Torah is actually going to be a ministry of death to you. Ultimately, it's going to seek to kill you over and over again. You don't even realize that, but that's exactly what it's going to be doing. And so, it's death if you set your mind that way, but by contrast, to set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. So, you can lead a Torah Torah observant life. You can affirm all the things that God asks you to affirm if you're a religious Jew, but if you're doing it according to the power of the Spirit, it's going to be radically different. It might look similar to other people on the outside. You may, might still look like a religious Jew. But from God's perspective, you're going to have a power in your life. You're going to have um, a, a, a true witness and a light and a life and a vibrancy that can only come by having the son of god taking up residency on the inside of a man let's keep reading paul says for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law and indeed it cannot so there's a sense in which the the righteous fulfillment of the law can't be accomplished until you become a believer right that's a very reality a very stark reality in paul's mind you can't really do what god asks you to do the way that god designed it to be done until you confess jesus is lord however paul already knows and i have this conversation with people all the time it is possible to do what the torah asks you to do even as an unbeliever but you just have to realize that there's an element of torah keeping that's very earthly or fleshly or temporal it's simply um kind of um functions in the way of getting the job done uh on a pragmatic level right there are parts of the torah that describe um actions that you should do to your neighbor uh things you should do to your spouse um uh you know or things you should do you should do for the general community around you like for instance if we could include the commandment to be fruitful and multiply in the book of exodus uh book of genesis or the commandment to circumcise your babies on the eighth day in Leviticus and things like that. You don't have to be filled with the Spirit of God to be able to be fruitful and multiply. Last time I checked, there are billions of people around the world who are able to keep that commandment without any, even, any recognition of God. right? You don't have to be able to love God to be able to be fruitful and multiply. right? doesn't require Jesus to know how to have procreation. right? to procreate um likewise um you don't have to be spirit filled to be able to circumcise your baby on the eighth day so what's the point I'm trying to make is there are parts of the Torah that you can just walk into because they are very pragmatic they're practical they're meant to be able to be done by any general generic average Israelite or person who's Torah observant right and they kind of help to keep the world functioning and help keep the world going around right imagine how the world would stop if everyone stopped procreating right <laughs> be a big problem um, so that 's not what paul 's talking about he 's aware that you can keep parts of the Torah without confessing Jesus as lord indeed if from a from a child perspective as you 're brought into a family of torah keeping parents, then you are probably going to be keeping the Torah as a child you know obey your parents um, that 's part of the Ten Commandments right children obey your parents you can keep that commandment as a child even before you know who Jesus is. So, um, the environment of keeping Torah is ideal because it's going to be a safeguard to allow the Spirit to move into that situation and eventually allow um, you to contemplate who Jesus is because the environment of Torah is the environment that God used to bring His Son into the world and to introduce um, the New Covenant anyway. It was within the framework of the of the existing covenant that the new covenant was introduced wasn't brought in from the outside as if it was something that was radically different and it never even um existed indeed if you go back and read ezekiel chapter 36 as well as jeremiah chapter 31 as well as hebrews chapter 8 and hebrews chapter 10 you'll find that the new covenant right quote unquote is actually um a, a central feature of the new covenant is having the words of Moses the words of God written in the heart so that you can walk them out in a spirit-filled manner let's keep reading so I said last week those who are in the flesh cannot please God so again the idea is that can you keep the Torah without the Spirit of God can you keep the Torah without confessing Jesus as Lord well yeah if you were to take the the generic 613 commandments that the rabbis think that there are I don't know there could be more it could be less right but for the purpose of this um for the sake of our conversation, let's just say there really are, 613, and you were to go through them one by one and start mocking off, can I keep this without being a Christian? Can I keep this without believing in Jesus? You're going to find that there's quite a bit that you can do, right? Because it's a practical document. It's God had a pragmatism about him, right? There's a sense of common, there's a common sense aspect to the Torah that, hey, right, you don't have to be spirit-filled to, get, to, to help your get your neighbor's donkey out of the ditch. It would be nice if you were spirit-filled when you were performing that activity, but you don't have to be. Right? There's a lot of just general good-natured altruistic people in the world that are willing to do a lot of good deeds, and they don't even really have to confess Jesus is Lord, right? They're just good natured, they're just good um people, right? They they're able to do Torah commandments without understanding who Jesus is. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the 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 um the the bigger picture in view, right, is that from a salvific perspective Unless you confess Jesus is Lord and allow the Spirit to move inside, ultimately, at the end of the day, all of your actions are going to prove to be self-serving. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, it's going to show that you were really serving yourself instead of serving the other out of a true heart of love. So, that's the point I'm trying to express, and that's why Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ultimately, right? looking forward at the end of the day, on Judgment Day, um, were you pleasing God or were you pleasing yourself for some other reason? Now, let's continue verse 9. So, this isn't really a Trinity um, discussion. It's an excursus because in order to really appreciate the aspect of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, we really need to recognize His role and His functions and His ministry in our lives, why He's brought into the picture in the first place, why it's not really proper to simply refer to Him as an it. Is an impersonal force like electricity or static or something else like that. The work of the Holy Spirit is vital in being pleasing to God and allowing us to do actions that are going to lead to life and um, uh, well-being and fullness and um, joy in, in the life of God. Paul says in verse 9, You, however, not, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Why does Paul say that? Because he knows that a life led in faith in the Son of God includes the Spirit of God, right? Not just this impersonal force, but the very Spirit of God, God's very own Spirit whom He sent into our hearts, the Spirit of His Son, like He says in Galatians chapter 4, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Notice the way Paul seamlessly overlaps the Spirit of God in his writings with the Spirit of His Son, right? The Spirit of Christ with the Holy Spirit. So all three words become uh, used interchangeably when we're talking about the presence of the Spirit in our lives. So the question is asked Who lives inside of me as a Christian? Is it the Spirit of God, which is God Himself, according to some uh, theologies, right? According to like Unitarian uh, theology? Is it God Himself that lives inside of me? That's option one. Or is it two? Is it the A spirit of Christ, like some theologies teach, that lives inside of me? The spirit, uh, you know, Christ the spirit, or um, some people believe that Christ is a spirit being. Is that who lives inside of me? Or is it C, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity? Or as Pentecostals and Charismatics are fond of saying, is it the Holy Ghost that lives inside of you? Who is it? Or what is it? And really, I keep saying the answer is yes. It is all three, in this sense, because you can find passages that support either wording. And that's that really, in my opinion, doesn't introduce confusion or ambiguity or or um, um, equivocation. Instead, what it does is it, it kind of nuances the, the view of the Holy Spirit to a point where we realize that God is complex and that we're likely dealing with, and in fact, we are dealing with Trinity, one being, one what, one God, in essence, and yet he's tripartite. In his complexity, the persons of God are separate and distinct, and yet they're, it, it's one God that we're dealing with. So, you Christians, you believers, you're not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. And here's the proviso if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Notice he says spirit of God here, but then without even skipping a beat, Paul says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And Is this a mere stylistic change? Is he just introducing different words because he didn't want to say Spirit of God? Let's jump over to the Greek for a second. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Spirit of God... Oops, didn't mean to do that. Spirit of God is... Um, oops, it's verse 9 here. Spirit of God is this part right here. Uh, Pneumatheu so, it's made up of two words, pneuma or Numa, if you don't like to pronounce the P, if that's the way you were learned your Greek in school, I'm fine with that. Uh, I learned it as pronouncing the P just very quickly at the very beginning, pneuma. Um So, pneuma, and then Theu. The second word, Theu, is the common word for God, or the generic word for Elohim, from the Hebrew over into the Greek, Theu. It's where we get the word God, or Theos, or Theo, or Theos, or Theology. And so, penuma theu is the spirit of God, and the um, the word theu, if I hover over over it, um, it's actually a genitive case. And what that means, it's a genitive in the masculine singular, a noun in the genitive case with the masculine singular um, number. And what this means when we say genitive, if you look that up, it's the part of grammar that connotes uh, a connection of nouns and things with ownership or relation to um one another so that we can really say that it's god's spirit or we introduce the of word in english the spirit of god if you want to put the word spirit in front like it shows up in the greek is spirit of god that's the genitive case or god's spirit but in the same sentence paul also if you notice here let me keep them both so you can see them both so we got panuma at the first part and then we also have in the same uh, case uh, Pnuma Christu and you can tell the case endings in Greek by the sound of the ending of the noun oo and ooh Pnuma theu, and Pnuma Christu right and Christu if I hovered over it is also a noun in the genitive masculine singular and uh, Pnuma is the same um, noun in the in the um the um uh, I think that's uh, uh I can't remember what the A is off the top. I my said active. They're active, nominative, singular. So, it's an active noun, I believe. Active. That doesn't make sense. That's only for verbs. I'll have to look up and see what the A is in a moment. But, Penuma Christu is translated as Spirit of Christ. Or, if we want to take out the word of and just use an apostrophe, which is what genitive case does, it's Christ's Spirit. So, we have God's Spirit and we have Christ's Spirit. So, we go back and look at the English. And um, that's what Paul is saying. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact you have God's spirit dwelling in you, if God's spirit dwells in you. Anyone who does not have Christ's spirit, right? That's the way genitive works, does not belong to him. Again, I think that this is an inside peek at Trinitarian. Uh, theology in Paul's writings where he overlaps Spirit of God with Spirit of Christ seamlessly without skipping any words or without stopping to supposedly explain why he's going to use a different phrase. And it wasn't confusing in the first century. It's uh, as challenging as it might be to us today because we try to figure out why does he switch words. But in the first century, um, the frame of mind that was... uh uh, that people operated with uh in the biblical worldview was simply that god was complex and that's it he's he's not all noble and all um uh we, we can't fully understand him we simply worship in the in the beauty in the in the mystery of his complexity and so if the spirit of god dwells in you but the spirit of christ dwells in you and yet there's only one spirit like paul teaches elsewhere well then that's God's business, right? That's God's complex complexity. Let's keep reading some of these. Let's let's cover just a few more verses. We're not gonna finish this tonight. Like I said, I think I'll take three weeks for this excursus. In verse 10, he says, But if Christ is in you, what remember the original Greek didn't have verse breakdowns. So in Paul's mind, he simply wrote, If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if in but if Christ is in you. So even if we want to say that christ if if the spirit of christ is really a clever way of saying god's spirit that he put in christ right as if i could take my own spirit like like let me see um let's use like a an, an, an ex, a different absurd example um let's say that um people are computers and the spirit is a a hard drive You could take computer a and put the hard drive a hard drive that belongs to ariel so it's it's this this hard disk uh that you know that i'm talking about in my computer it belongs to me this hard drive and i can put it in computer a and i can say that this hard disk that is in the computer belongs to me so it's ariel's hard disk right but it's in computer a i could likewise take this hard disk out and put it in computer b it doesn't mean that it's computer A's hard disk that lives in computer B. It's still Ariel's hard disk that lives in computer B. Understand my analogy here? So in that sense, when I move the hard disk from computer A to computer B, right, old computer, new computer, or, or something like that, it doesn't mean that the ownership of the hard disk transferred to from me to the to computer A when I moved it from computer A to computer B. So that I sh- should say the uh computer B's hard disk. It's actually really all along it's ariel's hard disk it belonged to me from the beginning i purchased it i just decided to put it in computer a and then move it to computer b in this first analogy we could perhaps say the unitarians are saying that the spirit of god that dwells in you is the spirit that is in christ because it's god's spirit he's the ownership factor so the spirit of christ is not trying to say that it's christ's spirit trying to say that it's God's spirit, but it lives in Christ. That's the Unitarian perspective is that God placed His very spirit in Christ, and therefore um, that's what's going on in verse 9. So, they don't see any difference, in, they don't see any first person, third person going on with Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ like we Trinitarians do. However, I think that that can't be accurate because when we get to verse 10, Paul doesn't say, but if God is in you as if to imply that it's simply God's Spirit when he used the phrase Pneuma Christu, Spirit of Christ, as if it's still the ownership belongs to God, but he's just using a phrase to understand that it's through the um, person of the Son of God, right? As if God put His Spirit, His very own Spirit, into Christ, and then Christ in us represents God in us. I understand that there is a sense where that is true but paul doesn't phrase it that way instead he goes on now to say in verse 10 but if christ is in you which pushes it into i believe more of a trinitarian perspective because he's he just got through saying in verse uh nine Uh, You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, who the Spirit of God dwells in you. Which could be just simply another way of saying uh, God the Spirit, or it could be another way of saying the Holy Spirit. There, there's a little bit of ambiguity, a little bit of equivocation on the word Spirit of God. Although, again, since we've got God's name in there, Theu, we could simply say it's God's Spirit. And we don't have to have any difficulty, because Trinitarians realize that it's one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is still one God, right? Here, oh Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, one God, not three gods. So, notice it's God's Spirit who dwells in you, but it's God who's in us. In some passages, but here in Romans, Paul wants us to know it's Christ in us, right? And then. We're going to keep going with this, but if Christ is in you, so don't hang up your coat just yet because we're not done. Let's pull one more verse and then we'll finish. He says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice this is a description of a believer. This is a believer's state of being. Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin. Notice there's still this aspect, like Paul talked in the previous chapter, where sin is has influence over me in, and if i yield to it then i'm going to produce fruit for death ultimately if i let sin have its way it'll it'll push me into that um trajectory but we can have now the ability to have mastery over sin because of the new life of christ inside of us because of the life of the spirit we don't have to be slaves to sin go back and sometimes read sometime on your own reading start in romans chapter 5 and read chapter 5 6 7 and 8 of Romans all in one setting just do that on on a, on, a, on a morning or an afternoon just set set your bible and set your set your set your time to do it you know give yourself an hour or so to read them with understanding and you'll find that Paul is describing this life of how we used to be slaves to sin and condemned because of that lifestyle because of our status before God as being pronounced in God's courtroom as guilty and sinners. But because of our district attorney known as Jesus, who paid the price and set us free, he became our substitute, right? Our advocate, um, you know, substitutionary atonement there. Now the price for sin has been paid and God's courtroom ledger has been satisfied. And so now when God brings the gavel down on our behalf, the pronouncement is not sinner, the pronouncement is saint. And so if Christ is in you, the body is dead. We've been crucified with Messiah. That's what Paul teaches in the previous those five, six, seven chapters. We've been crucified with Messiah. So now in chapter eight, he can say the body is dead because of sin. It's kind of a, a two aspects here he's talking about. On the one hand, the sinful body was crucified with Messiah on the cross. But on the other hand, the sin that still remains um kind of floating around in our system, because we still have this. Um. Uh, this in uh, this in uh imperfect body, that sinful body and those sinful passions that still uh, reside within us are really um, um, instruments of death as well. And if you let them play themselves out, then they will lead to sin. So you, you've got to. Um, say no to sin on, a, on an everyday basis. It's not an automatic process, like a robot that's been reprogrammed, right? That's not the way God works. Even though the Spirit of God lives in us, and even though our pronouncement is now saint instead of sinner, nevertheless, we have a battle that's going on inside of us. and We're not slaves to sin. That's the point, right? In our old nature, we were slaves to sin, but now we've been renewed. We have a new nature, and we can now please God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can walk the spirit provided we keep our mind focused on the spirit so it's a conscious effort but the spirit is going to be working inside of us to help us accomplish those works so the body is dead because of sin but the spirit is life because of righteousness and so uh, it's from those thoughts that we move into this idea that um this spirit who is in messiah it's the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead if this spirit live dwells in you and I've already mentioned this in the past, and I'll stop with this verse. We'll pick this up again next week, so I'll just gloss over it right now. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We're going to see how, and we'll see this next week, but I'll just gloss over it tonight. We'll see how, on the one hand, Paul is again giving Um, resurrection power to God, because it says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the normative way of describing or answering the question who raised Jesus from the dead is to give God that credit. But because we're talking about a complex God who reveals himself in three persons, there are passages that illustrate that it was not only Jesus who had the power to raise himself from the dead, because he's very God-veiled in flesh, remember he's got two natures, But it's also the holy spirit that raised jesus from the dead right here in verse 11 of romans 8 the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead we can say it's the holy spirit that raised jesus from the dead but then he who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you is it the holy spirit that paul's talking about or is it god's spirit is it god the spirit is it the holy spirit if you look at the greek just like in the English. We're missing the descriptors of um, theu or kristu or um, hagiu, like we talk about when we say Holy Spirit, right? hagiu or something like that. It simply says panuma. That's all, right? There's no no other words to tell us: is it God's Spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it Christ's Spirit? And so I think Paul wants us to understand that we're simply talking about the Spirit. And so we'll pick this up next week. But that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of trinity let's turn to our liturgy now for tonight um we're going to start the liturgy off with the omer count since we're in the middle of counting the omer and so the omer of in judaism we count the omer at night and so the omer count for monday night april 19th 2021 is where we're at right now so you can see i've got chabad.org's omer count literature pulled up. And we're just going to keep borrowing that as we work our way through the Omer. Let me read through the English here on this this side of the screen. And then over on the right side of the screen or immediately above, there's some either Hebrew or transliterated Hebrew, whichever one you're more comfortable with reading. And then after that, um, I'll drop down into the page and I'll read this uh, blessing right here and then read the corresponding Hebrew on the right side of the page. So let's start right here Uh, the english says blessed are you lord our god king of the universe who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the omer and the hebrew corresponding reads let's drop down a bit and continue uh with our blessing the english says Today is 23 days, which is three weeks and two days of the Omer. And the Hebrew over on the right side of the page reads, Yom And that'll do it for the Omer count liturgy. Let's continue with our liturgy. Uh, by looking at the prophets, the prophetic book of Ezekiel. We're going to just use this through our um, Omer count, or we'll keep reading this, developing uh, the, the truths of this particular passage. We're reading Ezekiel chapter 36, since it's a promise of the outpouring of the Spirit on corporate Israel someday, and since during the counting of the Omer, we're working our way towards the Shavuot experience of celebrating the, the um, gift of Torah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then it's only fitting that we um read passages that read liturgy that's related to um, the giving of Torah and or the 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 um outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how it causes to our observance in corporate Israel. So we read verse 22 last week. Uh, this week, we'll just read verse 23. So we're just kind of reading one verse at a time. So starting right here on this side of the page, left side, the ESV reads, quote, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when you, I'm sorry, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Notice Jew and Gentile are in view here. God has always had Jew and Gentile in view in salvation history, when he's bringing in the Abrahamic promises, when he's establishing the Mosaic covenant, when he's raising up the Davidic, Davidic dynasty, dynasty, and then bringing in the Messianic uh, promise and the figure known as Yeshua. And so all of it fits together if we just continue to remind ourselves that it's never been a Jewish-only operation from the word go. The Gentiles are not plan B. They are plan A along with Jewish Israel. Israel is composed of Jews and Gentiles. Let's look at the... Um, uh the uh hebrew over here on the right side of the page the hebrew says "Vakidashti et shmi hagadol hamkhol ba'goyim asher sirchil tam but v'yad'u hagoyim ki ani adonai no'am adonai ba'hi ba'hi kachi ba'hem va'hem sorry le'ein nehem and again we'll keep Looking at this, we'll just take it a verse by verse as we're working our way, counting, our way uh, um, uh, counting the Omer, working our way from Pesach to Pentecost, and we'll just keep using these passages. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 14, the, verse, the uh, passage that we're studying in our Romans 14 study. We read verses 1, 2, and 3 last week. Let's just read verse 4 and 5 tonight, and that'll conclude for our, our um, uh, liturgy. And then right after the liturgy, we'll turn to the little video, and then right after the video, we'll close in prayer. Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let's turn to the Greek over on the right side of the page. The Greek, verse 4, says, Su, tis, ehokrinon. Alatrian oikatine to idio curio stake a pipte stathesati de dunite gar ho curiaste autan. And verse five says hos min garacine himeron par Himera has de crine pasan himeron Hecastos into idio noi play rough and that'll do it for our liturgy. For tonight let's turn to the short little video and we'll watch the video and then once the video completes we'll simply t- close and dismiss in prayer okay you ready here we go Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright, Taitse Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question for tonight. Why do most Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah? We're of course talking about unsaved Jews. All right, all still photography used in this video is courtesy of unsplash.com. I am a Messianic Jew and I proudly embrace Yeshua Jesus as my personal Messiah. Most Christians know that the Jews in the first century rejected Jesus because of his supposed political failings of John 6.15 and because of his claims to divinity. Read John 10.33. So that's first century, right? We know that. But what about today? What about today's 21st century Jews? Why do they reject? In many ways, the Jews of the last 2,000 years or so have not so much rejected Yeshua as the Messiah of Israel as they have rejected Christianity as a competing religion to Judaism. This is just my perspective of witnessing with unsaved Jews over the course of my 25 years of witnessing with them or so. Okay, This is my perspective. To the religious Jew, Jesus and Christianity are intertwined concepts and cannot be neatly separated in discussions about Messianic candidates. That's one of the first things that you need to realize as Christians. What happens is that many Jews who are mildly familiar with the New Testament nevertheless Misunderstand the message of Yeshua and of Christians, and interestingly enough, and kind of humorously, sometimes these Jewish people end up attempting to use those verses that they read and misunderstand. They use these, verse, these verses from the New Testament in their argument against Christianity and against Jesus. So they've heard something said about Jesus, and they're not sure what where, if it's truth or if it's fact, if it's fiction. But you know, they think maybe it was found in the Bible, so. They they start rattling those things off and that's what their argument is. I'm going to attempt to list a few of the Jewish objections that Christians may not have heard of before with corresponding text from Jews, followed by my short answer to that objection with my text supporting my more correct understanding of the text as a believer. Space is only, only going to let me cover about three of the big ones that I often hear from unsaved rabbis. Okay, so Just three of the big ones that uh, I'm familiar with. I'll, I'll quote their objection and the verses that they often quote sometimes all right you guys ready here we go Objection number one, Jesus did not fulfill the Messianic prophecies. Our king is still on his way. Christianity says he was that king, but even Jesus himself disagrees. Read Ezekiel, Isaiah, and even the book of John, where Jesus seemingly says that he's not the king that they're looking for. All right, here's my answer. He will fulfill many of the future prophecies during a second coming millennial kingly reign on earth. Read Matthew, Zechariah, and Isaiah. Even the book of Hebrews recognizes, quote, at present, we do not yet see everything in its subjection to him. That's actually Hebrews 2, 8. So the things he didn't fulfill at his first coming, he'll do at the second coming. Objection 2. Judaism doesn't need to rely on signs and wonders and miracles like Christians do in order to believe in Messiah. Read Deuteronomy and the book of John. Jewish belief is actually based on national revelation of God to a people. Read Exodus 19, through 5. That's another strong objection from Jewish people, right? Here's my answer. Christianity is rooted in biblical Judaism and thus accepts national revelation as well. However, the apostolic writings are based on eyewitness testimony by Jews and Gentiles who lived and met the living Messiah 2,000 years ago. Understand that? And many of which performed their own signs and wonders and also wrote down what they encountered. Read Mark, Luke, and Acts. So we have eyewitness account of what took place from Jews. Objection number three: Judaism believes the Messiah will lead the Jewish people to full Torah observance with a renewed heart. Read Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. The Torah states that all commandments remain binding forever. Read the Book of Psalms. And anyone coming to a change coming to change the Torah is immediately identified as a false prophet. Per Deuteronomy. Christians, this is their objection still, Christians have historically rejected Torah, claiming Jesus fulfilled it so that they don't have to follow it anymore. Matthew 5.17. Jesus, as well as Paul and others, violated the Torah and stated its commandments are no longer applicable. Read John, a few places in Romans and Galatians, and a few places in Hebrews. So that's their objection. Here's my answer: Yeshua came not to do away with Torah, but to fulfill it. Read Matthew 5.17 through 20. Every Christian who knows his New Testament affirms that Jesus kept the law blamelessly. Moreover, Peter, Paul, and and the other myriads of other Messianic Jews read Acts and, and and such. They were Torah observant. Paul teaches that all true believers, even Gentile Christians, are in fact fulfilling the Torah's true intention. Read Romans and Galatians. So fulfill in the Matthew 5 passage must be shown not to mean abolish, but to mean whoever does them and teaches them would be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua came to fulfill Torah's deepest heart requirements by empowering Christians to keep the fullest measure of meaning and purpose to the commandments. He also became the fullness of the sacrificial systems, substitutionary atonement, read Hebrews chapter 9, which satisfies God's righteous requirement as embodied in the law. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight let's dismiss in prayer abba i'm so thankful to be part of a worldwide effort to bring glory your name through the medium of the internet and these particular studies these youtube videos these itunes podcasts that are produced by your spirit and by your power i'm simply the the um co-worker that's uh been brought in along to help um facilitate that lord i'm just thankful to play a part Thank you, Lord, for all the students who participate with me week after week, the people who send in comments and questions to my YouTube videos and send me emails and dialogue with me, challenge me, sometimes oppose me in some of my theology. That's fine um we can have healthy discussions and disagreements so long as at the end of the day we respect one another and the goal is to bring glory to your name and to honor you and so thank thank you lord for this endeavor thank you for the challenge thank you for continuing to help me um keep this ministry going um really lord i give you the credit for keeping it going the people who send support and monies and funding and things like that you're the one who's 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 empowering them and and uh inspiring them lord i pray that you'll bless them where they're at um continue to raise us up help us to be a witness for your name ambassadors for your kingdom and lord keep us safe from COVID. we'll be thankful to give you the praise and the glory bashem yeshua amen